everybody. Scott Bowden, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of the KFR podcast. And actually, today, we are going to take our loyal listeners out of the friendly confines of the WMC TV studios at 1960 Union Avenue and on a proverbial podcast safari, if you will, into a deep, dark jungle, an unlikely stomping ground, literally, for some of the most exotic, memorable characters in Memphis history, including a giant with a Subaru-sized belly who gobbled up Jerry Lawler to take the AWA Southern Championship in May 1982, kicking off a hot, humid summer at the box office. Uganda? <sighs> no. Will you stop? No, I'm talking, I'm talking about Jerry Jarrett's backyard, ah. home to many an exotic creature that would make Citizen Kane envious. Not to mention that hilltop million-dollar mansion. <laughs> okay, I'm talking about the mighty Tito Khan. Apocalypse. Kamala the Ugandan giant. And Jim Barnett. That's right, Scotty, my boy. And today we'll be speaking with one of the all-time great managers in wrestling history who worked virtually every territory on his bucket list, including two brief yet memorable runs in Memphis. Most fans may know this WWE Hall of Famer as the manager of the Four Horsemen, but to Memphis fans, he's the nefarious modern-day Carl Denham, who ventured into Jarrett's backyard, quite literally, and returned with a jungle savage who would serve as a Kong-sized attraction in the summer of 1982 and reignite the business around the area. Today, we welcome J.J. Dillon to the KFR podcast, who will share his fond memories of working Memphis including his candid thoughts on Jarrett, Eddie Graham, Jimmy Hart, Lance Russell, and Dave Brown. Plus, JJ will recall the amazing reaction of the King's loyal fan base when he pulled the strap and made his comeback at the Mid-South Coliseum. And he'll also compare the King's popularity with that of the American dreams in the Sunshine State. Well, if we're going to get it all in, we better get going. We'll be right back with J.J. Dillon, right after this. Jerry the King Lawler. You know, each week I've been taking time from my, from my busy schedule to watch by special satellite hookup from my penthouse just to see what kind of effect my presence has had on you. And I know that you're, you're trying to ignore me. I saw Jimmy Hart make a play, a desperate play, to try and join forces with you to, to nip it in the bud, I think he said. And you put him down, so I think Mr. Jimmy Hart is already starting to understand where he stands in this situation. Now, I know, Jerry Lawler, that at this point, for whatever your motives, you're trying to ignore me. I mean, you got your own television show in Memphis. You're a big star in, in Louisville, in Evansville, in Lexington, in Nashville, New York, and Tokyo. Just like I am. And that's the important bottom line. So if you want to play a waiting game with me, Mr. Lawler, I'll play your game for the time being because I feel that I hold all of the aces see when you talk about a waiting game 
The Zambui Express. Mr. Elijah Akeem, Mr. Kareem Muhammad, a combined weight of over 650 pounds. And see, Mr. Lawler, when you talk about waiting, you're talking about 200 years of misery, 200 years of chains that have bound the Zambui Express. And after 200 years, they're tired. They are going to break the chains. They're not waiting for somebody to come along and unlock the key. And when you're as big as the Zambui Express, you can do as you please. And when you have James J. Dillon behind you, well, I'm not going to expound on that. But King Conga, <laughs> King Conga from the streets of New York, fought for everything he's ever had, and now he's fighting not for his life, not for a place to sleep, not for a meal to eat, but he's fighting for the almighty dollar in James J. Dillon. And when you wave money in front of people's faces, you get things done. Lawler, when we fish in the state of Florida, we chum up the water. Chum up the water, we take the small fish and cut them into little pieces. And that's just what King Conga is doing now. We're waiting for the big daddy to come along. I'm talking about you, Lola, because that's all I want. I don't want the small fish in the pond. I want you. And when you come after the chum, I'm waiting with the big hook, and I'm going to get you. Welcome back to Kentucky Fried Wrestling. You know, the initials JJ are synonymous with the wild and woolly world of Memphis wrestling, as the late, great Lance Russell might say. Given the fact that a self-made man from Tennessee overcame a double cross from his longtime business partner, Nick Goulas, and within months had become one of the youngest owners of a thriving territory in the history of the National Wrestling Alliance, thanks in part to the backing of Eddie Graham, perhaps the sharpest mind the business has ever known, and generally regarded as one of the most creative Finnish guys ever. Uh, now, Eddie served as a mentor to Jerry Jarrett uh, as he became one of the youngest men to ever take control uh, of the Memphis Territory and quickly shut down the Memphis Wrestling War. Likewise, uh, our guest today with the same iconic initials also learned under the master in the, sun, in the uh, Sunshine State before a chance encounter with a savage beast in the jungles of Uganda. Okay, it was Jarrett's backyard. But anyway, it changed the course of not only journeyman Sugar Bear Harris's career, but ignited the Memphis territory like a Jerry Lawler fireball on a hot summer night. You may know him as the manager of the Four Horsemen at their peak, but he will always, in my mind, be the mastermind who turned around business in Memphis in the summer of 82 and became involved in some of the most memorable angles for the next two years in the territory. And he did so alternating as a baby face in a heel, which I guarantee you is no small feat for a wrestling manager in Memphis. Ladies and gentlemen, who else could it be? I give you the WWE Hall of Famer himself, James J. Dillon. Welcome to KFR, JJ. Oh, glad to be on. Uh, well, let's talk. You know, we uh, I, now I spoke with you a, a little bit before uh, we we came on the air, and 
reminiscing uh, about your your time in Memphis, and it wasn't uh, you know it wasn't a long run, but it was certainly memorable. Uh, business had been down in in the territory. Uh, this was about a month after uh, Andy Kaufman came into town, and con- contrary to popular belief, Andy Kaufman never sold out the Mid South Coliseum. Uh, now it did wonders for Jerry Lawler's career. Uh, not so much for Andy's, but <laughs> uh, that show that show drew about 9,500 people, and then it kind of t- was starting a decline. And so they needed to do something different. They needed a shot in the arm. So Lawler had been working some dates in Florida, and uh, I believe JJ did he approach uh, you and Eddie Graham with this idea uh, to take on this new character that you guys had developed, Kendo Nagasaki, where he would drop uh, the Memphis version of the Southern title uh, there at the Bayfront Center? Well, it started out that, uh, of course, Lawler used to to, uh, leave the Memphis territory and his, some would say, his comfort zone because, you know, he wanted that reputation of, of being an international star, which, in fact, he was. And he um, would come down to Florida when they would run the big shows at the Bayfront Center, usually once a month. And he came down and saw uh, Kendo Nagasaki, who I was managing at the time. And it was a creation with the help of uh, Terry Funk. And it just, it, it was, you know, one of those things that just caught on and took off. And so, um, Jerry uh, said, well, would it be possible for us to get some dates? Because uh, Memphis and the, the National Territory was down and they needed a spark. And and uh, so they had me do uh, a couple of promos. And just having the exposure on that Memphis television, which with Lance Russell was one of the great, great, television shows, regular television shows in the history of our profession. And it just created a lot of uh, interest. It's one thing when the, when the fan, local fans see someone on the, on the television, but when they hear uh, the stories and a, and a visual description or a, a verbal description, I should say, about the, an individual, uh, that makes it a little bit different. So that's how it had started out. Mm-hmm. And, it, it just, the fans, you know, wanted more and more. And every week it started out as just, you know, one interview. And uh, for this guy, they, they wanted to take the Kendo Nagasaki persona that I had on fire in Florida at the time and recreate something like that in the, in the Memphis territory. Mm-hmm. So... They wanted to know if I could do something to introduce, you know, whatever this creation was going to be, which ultimately ended up uh, Kamala, the Ugandan giant. So I um, was given the information. I had never met James Harris, never met the man to be uh, Kamala, the Ugandan giant. So they had to describe to me, you know, what he looked like and how big he was and and then I just, um, you know, went on a, a creative uh, rant about this person who, again, I, I never saw at that point. <laughs> and it's, uh, it, it's, I guess, human interest that when you hear something described and you hear the story grows week to week, then all of a sudden 
it was like, well, this is all good, but when are we going to see this person? First, it was me that they, they, you know, heard my voice or, or saw a video interview because I was working in Florida territory at the time. And Eddie Graham, who was the, the most influential person in the impact of my career, <clears throat> you know, loved to help other territories and other promoters that were down because he had had that experience in, in his territory at times. So uh, he wanted to <clears throat> help Jerry Jarrett. <clears throat> and and so they just wanted me to do some uh, promos from Florida. Like every Wednesday, we would do uh, market-specific promos for the individual towns in Florida. So it was like you do one extra one, then somebody would have to take the tape and, uh, you know, bust it up to Memphis. And Jerry, you know, it was an expense involved. It wasn't a great expense, but again, it was one more thing. And <clears throat> uh, Jerry Jarrett, uh, you know, they wanted, they want, really wanted to help him. And Eddie Graham knew that his territory was down. Again, having experienced situations like that, said, hey, <clears throat> not a problem to do an extra interview. And I was willing to do it. And and enjoyed, you know, because Memphis had the reputation. Memphis Nashville was one of the great territories in in our profession. So mm -hmm. if if I could do a little something to uh, put a spark in it, I, you know, I obviously uh, wanted to do it. So that's that's how it all started. Yeah, I, you know, and uh, I think one thing that was key because uh, Kendo Nagasaki and Kamala, two gimmicks that are just absolutely tailor made. For Memphis, <laughs> you know, Memphis had its fair share of uh, of outrageous gimmicks. Some 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 better than others. Uh, we also had Lord the Darth Vader and the Amazing Spider-Man wrestle occasionally. Uh, but but these, uh, I think, one thing that gave this this uh, this debut with Kendo, it's rare that a, that a guy Kendo Nagasaki would debut in Memphis. He's already got the Southern Heavyweight Title. Uh, you know, you've been all over the magazines. Uh, of course, Jerry Jarrett likes to kid me that uh, Jim Cornette and I were the only uh, people in the territory that ever bought the wrestling magazines, but I knew exactly who you were. And, and I love, I, I loved immediately. There was this natural rivalry sort of with, with you and Hart. And it, and it seemed like Hart was jealous of the fact that you were three time manager of the year. Um, and he had yet to, uh, to even make the top five. Uh, but yeah, looking at it, uh, Monday, May 17th, uh, Norville Austin, Dennis Condry versus Bill Dundee and Steve Kern. Uh, they drew about 4,000 people, and that is catastrophic for Memphis. Uh, the following week, no time limit, no disqualification. They, they show the footage from Florida. They also show uh, a clip of Mike Graham, who I believe bit into a condom filled with blood, uh, and he's like spewing blood, and they really get this cover. And then, and then there's you, you know, in the tuxedo, um, and one thing I've always liked about your promos, JJ, especially at that time period, uh, sometimes you would raise your voice and then sometimes you would lower it. It, it, it was just, it was always a kind of shifting emotions to get your point across. Whereas Jimmy Hart, you know, was always so manic and you were complete, you were the antithesis of Jimmy Hart. And I think people really believe that this guy is capable of traveling the world and finding some of the most exotic uh, wrestlers, unorthodox wrestlers uh, who can't be beat. Uh, and, and 
immediately got Nagasaki over it, and and it was all like a little different because Lawler won that match with a back with a uh, German suplex, and I used to, I was joking that uh, yeah, Lawler trained uh, with uh, Gotch for six weeks perfecting the uh, German, and he had never done that before. But again, this was like just something a little different. And then the thing with Kamala, I I honestly do not think that that video would have worked and it was aired in every single territory that uh mr harris appeared in after he left memphis uh but it wouldn't have worked in memphis had jimmy hart introduced it it took you uh you know given your prestige uh it was certainly plausible that you were on safari and found this guy um and i think jerry jarrett was one of those because harris had wrestled in memphis in 1980 and he goes, you know, he was lost. He had no idea what he was doing. So we decided to take that and turn it into a strength. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but yeah, your, your promo work was absolutely. Uh, I, and I think after that one, uh, that's when they were thinking, you know, we got to get this guy in here because uh, he's already he's getting so much heat. He hasn't even stepped foot in the territory yet. Well, it started out as uh, just. In Florida, again, business is down, so they're looking at doing something, you know, cost-effective to try and ho- hopefully spark the territory. And initially, they wanted a, a date on Kendo, but you know, things were so tight. They said, "Well, would you do an interview for him?" And we're just going to bring Kendo, you know, and not you. And I said, "I don't have a problem with that." And uh, it, it just it, it started from that and mushroomed from there. And there's something about uh, doing an interview on television and then not being seen in the town. It created mm. a mystique about me. Yeah. Um, and and again, Jimmy Hart had been so successful, and now I was somebody coming in from the outside. And at first, um, you know, Jimmy Hart kind of ignored me, and then it was obvious that uh, I was having impact. And, and what really got the whole thing over for me was that he, Jimmy Hart had been battling with Jerry Lawler. You know, it was like me with Dusty in Florida, and they had been mortal enemies. And all of a sudden, here I come in and threatened to come in and take the whole thing over that it caused uh, Jimmy Hart to go to Lawler and say, hey, you know, we don't have to like each other, but we we have to look at what's happening here. And we're being threatened, uh, our, our livelihood, by this person coming in and taking everything from us. Uh, as crazy as it sounds, we, we need to combine our, you know, whatever we have going to try and put a stop to this. So that caused great impact because they never thought they would ever see Jimmy Hart and Jerry Lawler. Uh, mortal enemies, you know, combining their talents, that right away said, hey, this is, whoa, there's something crazy going on here. We never thought we would ever see this. And then that just added more uh, credibility to what I had, you know, with Kendo. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a, a, an unholy alliance, I, I, I suppose, yeah. uh, because you yep. know uh, Lawler had made it. You know, the, when Law, I, I was in, uh, I was in the cheap seats, JJ, when when Lawler came back from that broken leg at the end of 1980, 
And oh my goodness, uh, you, well, you know you know what it's like. But that that Mid South Coliseum was special. And uh, every I, I actually kidded Jerry Jarrett when I had him on my podcast. I said, "Did you pay the fire marshal because that that, that Coliseum holds eleven eleven fifty eleven thousand five hundred people? There were people sitting in the aisles everywhere. I mean, there must have been like thirteen thousand people in there. And I thought when Lawler came up through uh, the the stage. He was, he was uh, um, mimicking an entrance uh, that he saw Kiss do at the Mid-South Coliseum, where he was raised up and the smoke came up. I thought, man, that, that flying saucer-shaped arena was going to just uproot and fly off into the sky. It was rocking. I was about nine years old. And, uh, and, the, and the Lawler heart feud was so hot for, for 81 and most of 82, they didn't even bring him the world champion ever. You know, which was, you know, the, the overarching storyline in Memphis was always, you know, Lawler's pursuit of the world championship. Uh, and they didn't even need it because the personal issue between those two was so strong. And then you come in, this interloper. And I also noticed, too, you never wore the same uh, color. Tux- you know, it wasn't like you just had the one tuxedo. You had the gray one. You had the black. <laughs> and I, it's one of those little details. Uh, like you had a whole closet full of them for the, for whatever occasion or mood you might be in. Uh, and your promos were so different from any other wrestling manager uh, that, that I had seen in, in the territory. Um, uh, and it was it, it was just great drama because, you know, could Lawler and Hart coexist again? Uh, and it was it, phenomenal stuff. And I believe you guys even had two straight sellouts. Uh, Kamala was supposed to defend the Southern title against uh, Handsome Jimmy, who was always a big draw, has a baby face in Memphis. Uh, and he, uh, I believe he got, he passed out at the Charlotte airport. And you were called in for emergency duty uh, to team with Kendo against Lawler and Dundee in front of 11,300 people. And you might think, oh man, not, I bet the house was down the next week. Nope. Another sellout, over eleven thousand people. <laughs> oh man! So uh, that was uh, well, that was well, a, for, that that was a heck of a run. Yeah, for me, I, I, I've always been. I started at sixteen years old uh, from Trenton, New Jersey, as a wrestling fan, and uh, to this day, I'm in my seventies now, and I'm still a wrestling fan. I, I, it's the greatest business in the world, and. Uh, it, I, it, excite, it still ex- excites me. So Memphis had the reputation as being Memphis and Nashville as one of the great territories. They talked about the Hearts in Calgary, and they talked about uh, Eddie Graham in Florida, and they talked about Jim Crockett in the Mid-Atlantic, the Carolinas. But Memphis was always one of those quote-unquote um, prime territories that anybody who I always thought if, if, when I'm starting out, if I'm going to be a, regarded as having been a success in this profession that I, that I loved since I was a kid, I'm going to have to, uh, you know, plant my flag at least briefly in, uh, you know, in, in all of these prime, prime territories of which Memphis was one. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to come in there and I was in Florida at the time working full time. And Lawler came. Lawler would would go out, and he would come to the Bayfront Center, and they would tape his uh, or film his match. So that perpetuated his reputation as being a true international star, which he was. And <laughs> excuse me. And so it 
I, I wanted to go to I wanted to go to to the Memphis Nashville territory and try to make a name for myself. So it it just was a natural springboard to take what Jerry Lawler saw in Florida with Kendo and said, "Wow!" And and could we get a date on? I mean, business was so rough that they said, to "Eddie, can we get a date on Kendo? We we couldn't afford to bring JJ too." And Eddie said, fine, you know, he wanted, he wanted to try and help the territory get turned around. And I had no problem because I had other things that I could do. And, but they still wanted me to do the promo, promo for it. And oh. I did that for a couple of weeks. And, and the result was it all of a sudden created interest in, well, they're seeing me on TV every week, but they're not seeing me in the town. So it's yeah. like, well, where is he? We, we want him. <laughs> yeah. And the interest, the interest grew. Uh, yeah, it was. It was almost like you. It was almost like you were too good to, to you know, to come to Memphis, uh, which only made the fans hate you more. Uh, it, it was a very unique situation. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, my style was a little bit different. I was not a screamer. I uh, was a storyteller. I wore mm. glasses. I would take my glasses off to make a point, and and I use it as a prop, and just my. Uh, my style was my comfort zone that made me different from anybody and everybody else. And that's not a guarantee that you're going to be successful, but fortunately for me, uh, it it worked and the fans, uh, embraced me. And, you know, and you didn't just come in for the, for the Memphis shots. Uh, you know, you worked the loop, uh, uh, Louisville, I know. And actually Travis Eckle, who's the resident artist at the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. I asked him, I said, you know, what was your first show? And, uh, he said, well, I've been begging my grandparents to take me for a long time. And boy, when JJ Dillon finally came, I had to be, <laughs> cause you know, he couldn't wait. Uh, it, this has been brewing for a while. You know, you cut the promo, I think, uh, the week of May 26, uh, you didn't hit the territory till July, I believe. Uh, that's a lifetime, you know, for, for December. Um, yeah, you, it interesting. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and Jerry Jarrett was so smart. He after Kamala won the belt from Lawler, he kept them apart and just had Kamala steamroll Kern, Mantel, Dundee, and you know, just and this and Lawler was tied up with you at that point, uh, and trying to figure out what you know what he was gonna do with Hart. Um and then in the middle of all this, uh Ric Flair comes in. Uh, with the NWA World Heavyweight title and, and and has that impromptu match on Lawler, which was fantastic television, uh, where, where Lawler lays a little of that country jive on him, as, as Flair says, uh, goes him into a title match. And it was just an exciting time. And, and it was funny because, uh, you know, they don't have the Lawler-Flair match that Monday. Uh, in fact, Flair never came back to get his payoff, which I think was he was angered about. But they have that hot show in Memphis with Flair in the studio and then I believe you're working on top in a tag match against Lawler and Dundee, and it, and it draws a near sellout. <laughs> so yeah, uh, we didn't really need the world champion. Mid, mm. The Mid-South Coliseum was, again, one of the great, great venues in our profession. And, and what, I, what I remember most about it was, and again, I think you said that, that – Capacity was like eleven thousand. Is that what you said? Uh, yeah, eleven thousand three hundred sixty-five. 
Okay. And, you know, when I was there the first time, like you say, the people were, I don't know what, what I don't know, like you say, I don't know if they took the bar marshal out for, uh, for a steak dinner or something <laughs> so that he wasn't there to see how many people were actually in the building. But it, I remember the Mid-South Coliseum because the fans, uh, especially when Lawler would come out and he would drop that strap, the fans yeah. would stomp their feet. And of course they had, you know, they had bleachers, so it created an echo effect and they would stamp their feet in unison and it would be, it, it would actually cause, and this, you know, sounds crazy, but I was there and I'm, I'm a witness to it, that it would cause the whole building to vibrate. Mm-hmm. They would stop and stop and stop louder. And if you were sitting there, you could feel the the building vibrate under your feet. It was the only building that I can ever remember that I was in that, that that was the case. I mean, those fans were just some of the greatest fans in the world. And that venue was just perfect for, for professional wrestling. And, and I'm just glad that I got a chance to come there and have a run and, um, you know, be able to help turn that territory around. I, I, I'm, I'm curious, JJ, because uh, obviously Dusty Rhodes, one of the biggest babyface attractions of all time, uh, and was sort of, you know, the hometown, uh, even though he's from Texas, but he, you know, had the big babyface turn uh, with Gary Hart, Pac Song in Florida. Uh, so he, you know, he was Florida's guy. Uh, how did Lawler, uh, how did his popularity compare? And Memphis compared to Rhodes and Florida, was it similar, or was it? Did it seem to be a little bit more special? The bond, perhaps, because Jerry Lawler went to Treadwell High School in Memphis, Tennessee, and you know was a skinny teenager, and within five years he dropped out of Memphis State University and was a Southern Heavyweight Champion, which kind of makes you a legend in in, in the South. Um, and like you say, but he pulled that strap. All my friends, everybody in the building, we would we, we, we would go boom. Boom. And it was almost like we were all uh, laying into the force of, of those punches. Yeah. Anytime that you could do something that becomes interactive with the fans is what you hope to achieve. But it's something that is very, very difficult to manufacture if it's not uh, genuine and if it's not something that's impromptu. and that's what it was with Lawler when he would come out and I remember watching it, you know, he would pull that strap down and the people were educated to, to, to know that, uh Oh, you know, the, this thing, I've been watching a match, but now I'm going to watch a fight because Lawler's had enough and whatever his opponent is doing, shortcuts, cheating or whatever, Lawler's going to drop the strap and he's going to get into the, into the, uh, into the gutter with this guy, and we're going to see one hell of a fight. And what was he your... was able to? Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, what was your first? You know, obviously, you experienced Jerry Lawler in Memphis and, and the phenomenon that existed there. Uh, you know, just to give you an idea, uh, on two, my dad used to joke with me that we would have like a hundred rubber bands uh, in the driveway because when that newspaper hit. I would run out to get the new, you know, the commercial appeal, the Memphis newspaper. Quickly turn to the sports section to see the wrestling results, you know. And, and if I lived in Pittsburgh, Terry Bradshaw probably would have been my guy, and I would have done the same there. But, but uh, you know, I grew up in Memphis, and we didn't have that. So, 
Uh, Lawler, Lawler was was through there, I got. But what about in? Did you see him for the first time in Florida as sort of a under? You know, not not an underneath guy, but I I think they I, Dory brought him in a lot after the empty arena match with Funk, and they kind of got some mileage out of that feud. What were your initial thoughts on him, and and did you think that he got over well in Florida? Well, you you have to go back, and I'm sure that a current fan. Uh, would have a hard time one, you know, ex- being able to wrap their arms around something that was prior to uh, prior to the internet, prior to cable television, that the, uh, the, the individual territories each produced their own television. So in Florida, Eddie Graham was a stickler on uh, amateur credibility, which is why he elevated the, uh, Jack Briscoe and Hiro Matsuda, and he educated the Florida fans that um, these these were legitimate uh, great wrestlers that had great credentials. Yet, if you went up to Detroit where the Sheik was, it was balls to the wall. Anything and everything would go, and it was wild and crazy and throwing fire and whatever. But the people in Detroit saw the Sheik and they thought, oh, well, this is what professional wrestling is. And yet the people in Florida saw uh, a, a different product that was at the other end of the spectrum that was really, and, and that's where Gordon Soley was so good mm. because he was like the Jim McKay of, from, uh, uh, of professional wrestling that, that, that gave it credibility because he, because he called it like it was an authentic contest. And that's yes. what the people were educated to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, and what were your impressions? Uh, you mentioned Lance briefly. Uh, what were your impressions uh, of Lance's body of work uh, compared to to Gordon? Uh, in a way, they had the same uh, sort of uh, folksy delivery, but but Lance was probably a lot less technical and sometimes a little bit more uh, heated. He, he would get a little bit more emotional um, uh, th- than Gordon. But I, I love those two. I to me they yeah Brown the weatherman, right? Was his uh, yeah, sidekick. Dave, yeah, and they complimented each other very well because because oh, Dave was always Dave was very even keel. Um, and you know, I, they did this angle. Uh, I, I don't know if you, it was after you left the territory, but it led to, you know, after Vince had started to make some inroads in Memphis, people were saying in 86, they would never sell out the Mid-South Coliseum again. Well, they do a deal where Jarrett comes out and Bill Dundee tries to take his eye out and Jer- and Jeff Jarrett is refereeing. Uh, and Lance gets up from the desk and Dave Brown for the first time ever goes, Hey, come on. And that carried so much weight that the number one weatherman in Memphis was getting uh, that mad and was about ready to storm the ring himself. Uh, and they drew. Yeah. They drew I mean, uh, they, yeah. It's those subtle nuances that that caused the fan that wrestling fans are the greatest fans in the world. They're creatures of habit. I know, like with our TBS show that ran at six oh five Saturdays and was in that consistent time slot for like 28 years. And I know myself that um, even though I was a part of that show, which was uh, uh, taped earlier in the week or in the morning on the Saturday so that you could then leave and go somewhere to uh, a live event that night. And it just, 
there were people who set up their whole Saturday schedule and they would tell you, say, well, I got to do this. And their wife wanted me to go here. And I said, no, no, wait a minute. You know, I've got to be home at 6.05 in front of that television when the show comes on the air. And that's how, that, that's how the, the, the following was, was so, so devoted. And when, when you build a core audience that uh, sets their, their daily life schedule around being home in front of the television when your show comes on the air, <laughs> you know you got a winner. Right, and right. That was a, a great time slot, and you know, and they they always you know had you know great people. I mean, Gordon Soley was perfect. Uh, Roddy Piper had a, a hell of a run in there, which was a, a bit of a contrast to Gordon, but they complemented each other well. It just was a and, and the fact that it was national because Ted Turner. And he's when he had this dream of taking Channel 17, a UHF station, and going and going global with it. Um, there were two things that that he saw as the core, and one was the Atlanta Braves, and the other was professional wrestling. And he, you know, he had a lot of Ted Turner had a lot of pressure from some of the the highbrows uh, in the upper floors of management and the, and the TBS organization, they kind of looked down on wrestling and they thought, Oh, you know, this is low brow. You know, they, you know, it was getting incredible numbers. It was like, they wouldn't have cried if it ceased to be a, no longer a part of their programming. But of course, Ted would not hear of that. Um, he, he loved wrestling and he's the one that really, uh, I don't want to say saved it, but, in essence, that's really what it came down to. He saved wrestling and wouldn't allow people uh, in power. And it was only years and years later where <clears throat> Ted had the, uh, you know, the title, but didn't have the clout that he did in the early days. And that's when it kind of got phased out. But it had a, an incredible run and an incredible following. Yeah, and, and I, th I think that's one reason why uh, Jarrett Lawler were able to keep their heads above water and were the last surviving territory because uh, w they had a great relationship with WMC TV5, uh, who produced the show. And so that that was key. That was huge uh, that they were able to keep going. Even, you know, But, of course, you know, like, as luck would have it, by the time I got into the business, <laughs> JJ, we were drawing about uh, 2,000 people, 3,000 people if we were lucky uh, to the Coliseum. But, uh, but nevertheless, I, I was thrilled to be there. And uh, I think, I, I, think I, I, I was a combination of, uh, of you or uh, trying to copy you and uh, Cornette and Jimmy Hart. So uh, I definitely had some good <laughs> good influences. Because I think occasionally you would sit at ringside and you had the penny, like penny loafers on and you would kind of prop your feet up at ringside, I believe. And I, I just always thought that was nice. And the first time I did it, I could hear Dave Brown going, look at this guy over here. Yeah, he's got a feet propped up like, yeah. uh, you know, just one of those, <laughs> just one of those well, little things. My, my, my philosophy uh, – uh, uh, was always Scott was always less is more. Mm -hmm. I didn't need to be up there uh, running around and going crazy and making circles around the ring and pounding on the mat. Uh, I kind of set myself up as being different. Like you say, I can go into the into the corner and ask for a chair, sit down there, and I, it was like I always kind of tried to think of myself as I'm not a quote unquote wrestling manager. I am like the, you know, somebody with the, has a football team or a baseball team that, um, 
is truly the person that's in charge and you know by how they carry themselves and what they do that they are in charge. Mm-hmm. And you can, it, it, it takes a little while for people to see what it is, but then when they do catch on, then that sets you apart from all the others. I didn't need to run around and scream or have a megaphone. And that's not, an, I don't want it to be interpreted as oh, no. a put down of Jimmy Hart because Jimmy Hart is one of the greatest of all and a, and a great personal friend and, and he's accomplished things in, in our business that uh, will probably be unequaled. But, uh, and, and everybody had to be different. And mine was less is more. And I kind of positioned myself as I dressed like a businessman, conducted myself like a businessman. And when I would do something, it was like, you know, I, I'm, I would do something as simple as taking a piece of paper and crumpling it up and then put it up on the corner underneath the bottom turnbuckle. And then I would stand up and excuse me, Mr. Referee, what is it you want? I said, somebody thrown, has thrown refuse in the ring and it's a, a risk to everybody. I, and I just want you to know that I'm knocking it out of the way. And then I would sit back down and people would say, well, what was that all about? Well, it just was part of my thing of, of kind of lowering them into, well, you know, Maybe he's not going to do anything. And then when I did do something, it would be at a critical point that would be impactful. It would either change the course of the match or immediately affect the outcome. And then the people were madder than ever because they kind of got lulled in and sucked into the fact that I wasn't running around and doing crazy things. And then they kind of forgot I was there. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) that was when I chose the moment to do something dastardly. There you go. There you go. The psychology is just uh, is, is is brilliant there. Uh, and I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I do have to say that it, it was also wonderful when they brought you back uh, in 84. Uh, and I think, again, business was down and it was really, really cool because, again, it gave prestige to the idea that the Southern Tag Team titles were defended across the southeast, uh, in, including Florida. Uh, and the Zambuis, uh, I believe, defeated uh, the Fabulous Ones. And you guys were threatening to, to leave the area with the belts. Uh, and Memphis was always yep. such a big tag team territory. And you were like the puppet master. You, you said, OK, uh, we, we will put the belts up one last time, but it will have to be uh, against the team of Jerry Lawler and, let's say, Joe LaDuke. You know, and, and they had never had Joe LaDuke as a baby face. He had always been this, you know, I'm not crazy. And he had, you know, sliced his arm live on Memphis television. He had actually broken Lawler's leg legit by throwing him over the top rope. They had never gotten along. And they're forced to team together uh, with Hart in their corner in the middle. Uh, and that eventually, and, and it was such brilliant, odd, it, it, you know, that was the thing about Memphis. Uh, they could be serious. They could, uh, you know, book the, book the world title programs when, when that was necessary, but then they could also shift and, you know, he had Lawler on the mic, hard on the mic. And then Lance Russell was the best straight man, uh, perhaps in, in, in history. Uh, but again, you reignited, uh, the territory there and talk about unholy alliance, you and Lawler formed a team uh, against LaDuke and Hart, and you were over as a baby face, which is uh, almost impossible in Memphis for a manager. Yeah, it was, it was a great place. And it was, uh, it, it was, it was one thing that I, I felt that my career would not have been complete had I not gone to, to Memphis national territory and, and 
not just a one-shot deal to come in there, but come in there and do something to, uh, um, you know, to have a to have a run, and then I can say, okay, you know, I can check Memphis and Nashville off of my bucket list because it was definitely, uh, uh, you know, one of the great respected territories in our industry. Uh, you know, uh, I wanted to ask you this really quickly, JJ, because I, th- I, I I've heard a lot of the boys say that that you know, gosh, you know you really haven't worked in the business you, you got to go to memphis you got to have that experience with it uh but there was also this reputation about the payoffs that i think initially started with nick Goulas. uh I, I by from my understanding the people i talked to they got better with jarrett uh and dutch mantel says you know he came in there working second third match uh for long he's working on top of lawler he goes you know if you got over and you and the promotion was making money. You were in the mid card to main event. You made money. Not everybody did, uh, and you can make some really good money. Uh, and you mentioned that TV show. That was, you know, around that time that you were coming in. That was the third highest rated show in the city, including primetime. I mean, right behind Dallas and Dynasty, which is just incredible for yeah. a local yeah. Saturday morning show. Uh, what, what did you think of uh, of Jerry Jarrett? Did you see a little bit of that creative energy uh, of Eddie Graham in, in Jerry? And uh, if you don't mind me asking, you don't you don't have to specifically, but how were the payoffs? Um, again, I never asked or, or never went on the reputation. Well, so so and so has a, a thing of uh, you know maybe not compensating. Uh, up to whatever the value is of a person. And I always, I, I can say with complete honesty that the whole time that I came in there and ever worked there, my compensation was commensurate to what I would get from Eddie Graham or any other promoter anywhere in the country. So I don't know what anybody else got or what they got before or what they got after. I only worried about taking care of my own business. And I was treated very, very well uh, in every in every way, from uh, the respect that they gave me to the financial compensation. And I'm proud of uh, you know, as I would look at my resume and the fact that I had a a substantial, what I would regard as a very successful run in the Memphis Nashville territory. And and my career would have been incomplete if, if I had not done there gone there and and accomplished in my own mind what i want I, I you know i would come in and i could say i was not a yeller a screamer or i didn't do great crazy outrageous things but i i presented myself as a businessman you know mm-hmm. somebody that's on the sidelines with a football team or the manager of a baseball team and yes you'll see little flashes of emotion but by and large, I was there to run it like a business, and people yeah. accepted me for that. Yeah, I, I, I remember one time I believe Kamala had maybe had dropped the title back to Lawler, and you were doing an interview, and you and you didn't yell, but you took your glasses off and and you and you rubbed uh, your nose like like where the glasses had been pinching maybe a little bit. Yeah. And you were, and you could just tell you were annoyed, and it, and I guess what people don't get that that says so much more 
you know, you're like, you're, you're feeling, you're feeling the stress. It's like almost like a nervous, t- you know, uh, but, but you know, we will be back, you know, it's just a setback and you, and you took the glasses off and you rubbed your, uh, your brow. And I, I, it just, anyway, I, it's just one of those little subtle moments that I think's lost today. And I, and I think and it was something that no one else ahead. was doing either. I, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that made it unique too. And that, so yes, you can scream and yell and get attention that way. And I got attention in a totally different way that was really, you know, people would look at it and like you say, they, they could pick up the subtle nuances and saying, he's not happy. He's angry. He's whatever. And yeah. that worked for me. Yeah. And I love that promo when, when you came back in, in 84 and you were, you know, we again, trying to get a guy over who uh, was unproven, but had the look uh, who eventually went on to be the barbarian for uh, Jim Crockett and, and later McMahon, uh, King Conga. Uh, and uh, that gimmick particularly didn't get over that great, but that interview you cut where... <laughs> Well, my friends and I quoted that for the longest time where, you know, in Florida, we chop up the, the little fish because we go after the big fish. We, and we and, you know, we, we chop up the chum, follow the chum, Lawler, follow the chum. <laughs> it was so fantastic. <laughs> oh, just just excellent oh, stuff wow. there, sir. Um, and I, I hope I'm not gushing, well, very, too, very gushing gratif- too much. Very gratifying to me that, uh, that these are memories that I have, but that you know, you're sharing your memories with me and the fact that, uh, you know, whatever I did back at that time, uh, you know, you still remember with a little smile on your face. And, and that's what this business is all about. Well, and, and I have to say your, your book is excellent. Uh, wrestlers are like seagulls. And I, it's probably one of the, the, uh, I, I have re, I have reread this book so many times because it's so interesting because you were a fan of the business and, and it's very interesting too. It, you know, you lived in Trent, New Jersey, I believe. And, and after the, the Dodgers left, uh, you were looking for something and, and, uh, yes. wrestling filled that void. It sounds like to me, uh, and you, and then you live the dream and you never forgot that. And, and I think that I, I just love uh, talking to people who were fans as kids, got into the business because it was their passion and uh, were successful. And it's a joy to read. And you're one of the few uh, who can provide insight into not only, you know, you're running Memphis uh, and breaking into the business and your times in Amarillo with the Fox, all that's fantastic, but it's very fascinating your experiences with vince mcmahon has his right hand man running creative uh in the uh late 80s early 90s uh, it's it's yeah, fascinating I was there stuff. For seven years and seven years and then i went to uh to turner's organization and held a, a similar position for seven years there so um everywhere that i went uh i uh made my mark and was impactful and uh again it had to do with fact that i had a passion for the business and you, you this business is such that you can't it's not like you can go to work if you had a job somewhere where you punch a time clock and now i'm on now i'm at work uh, mm-hmm. wrestling was something i learned this from Vince McMahon that uh it's a 24 7 deal and i i used to when i was working with with vince and with pat that I would be in the office all week, you know, with a suit and tie, doing all the detail work. And then all the creative was done on a weekend, on a Saturday and a Sunday <laughs> at Vince's home. We would be out at the veranda by the pool. And I watched <laughs> Stephanie grow up from being a young girl and 
and Shane was never around that much. He was off running around with his with his buddies, and you know, knocking over mailboxes with baseball bats and getting in trouble. <laughs> but it, it just was, uh, and we would work all. Vince was like, he would just he would drain you, and that you would end up being there, and it would be so late that uh, Mary, his cook, would would. Uh, make dinner and we would <clears throat> sit down and bring <clears throat> break bread with Vince and have dinner there and then work some more before I go home. And <clears throat> at the end of the day, I mean, I would be mentally and physically exhausted, but yeah. Vince was not expecting anything from me that he wasn't, uh, doing himself. And so he led by example. And that's why I have so much respect for Vince because I was around him all those years. I, I understood you know, and a lot of people don't know that that he declared bankruptcy three times before he made it big. He had the, the Cape Cod Coliseum with a hockey team that went under. And he just, he's a, and he's a guy, Vince McMahon's a guy who is always, not always other people's money. It was his money. And he'd go bankrupt and then have a vision and, and explore it. And so his place at the top of the, uh, 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 of the tree of people in professional wrestling, he earned that. He earned that position, and yes. not always an easy guy to work for. But he he was a, a brilliant, brilliant man. And uh, I worked for some of the best. I was around all of them, including Eddie Graham, that that probably impacted me more than anybody. But being around Vince was uh, in this business. I always tell people that if you get to the point where you say, "Well, hey," I got it all figured out. I don't have to, you know, think about it anymore. It, when you, if you ever get to that point, where you make a statement like that, better pack your bags and go home because it, all of a sudden it steamrolled you and passed you by. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just you never stop learning, uh, and you get surrounded by people. And but again, it's like anything else. So you heard that statement: if you love what you're doing as a job. You will never work a day in your life because you're doing something that you love. And that's how I felt about the world of professional wrestling. And I was so blessed and so fortunate to be around the, the who's who. Uh, you could drop a name in the business uh, of virtually anybody. And, um, you know, I, I met them, was around them, interacted with them from whether it's Cola Coriani that brought Raka from Argentina to this country to, I mean, you name them. Um, I, I, I was around all of them and, and did a lot more listening than I did talking and anything in life. If you get into a situation where you're surrounded by people that, uh, are the people that are, that are the movers and shakers, you're going to be better served if you just, uh, be quiet and listen. And then if they ask your opinion about something, you can give it, but unless they're asking your mouth shut, just listen. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's what I try to do when I'm I'm, I'm hosting this podcast, JJ, <laughs> and because uh, this is you know, and this is a dream come true for me. You know, uh, if you told me I'd, I'd be interviewing, you know, Jerry Jarrett was kind enough to be my first guest. We're we're over, or I think we're approaching forty five shows now. Uh, Jeff Jarrett in the middle of WrestleMania season uh, when he was getting inducted agreed to be. He, Jeff agreed to be on for thirty minutes. 
Uh, and we ended up talking for over an hour because he just because nobody was asking him Memphis questions. You know, they were all asking him about China and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I've had Bill Dundee on the show and Cornette a couple of times. And I, it's this is a pleasure. And uh, I, I thank you for uh, I, when we talked the other day, we talked for about 25 minutes. I said, oh, JJ, I better let you go because we're doing the interview right now. Uh, but uh, yeah, thank you, sir. Right. Yeah, thank you. And it was a well, pleasure meeting you. Pleasure meeting you in Vegas as well. Um, and, and, you, uh, and, and and this is um, this is not a this is a, if it's a labor, it's a labor of love, and it's something that I enjoy doing. And I I never get tired talking about it. <clears throat> and I'm fortunate that fortunate enough that I had a chance to uh, <clears throat> be around the great minds of the business. Uh, and you mentioned Eddie Graham, and and I, I can close my eyes and I had an office. Uh, in in Tampa, and there was a small office, and on the other side of my desk was a uh, was like a lounge chair, and then there was like a six foot hallway to the door, uh, and I would see the door open, and in would come Eddie Graham, and he would pop himself down in the chair, and I my eyes would get big, and and I just would uh, be like a sponge, wanting to. Yeah. Hopefully, encourage him to talk about whatever he wanted to talk about because whatever he talked about, uh, I was going to get some benefit from just listening to the man. And he, he was, he had a seventh grade education, but he was a, uh, uh, a doctor of human psychology and the greatest mind that I was, that I was ever around and, and a tough guy too. Uh, I wrestled at him and, uh, you know, Eddie would grab a handful of hair and, boy, you better be going. You better, when, when he grabbed your hair, you better be going wherever he was taking you because if not, he'd have a handful of hair. <laughs> you didn't want to be in that position. Eddie, Eddie was physically, he didn't, uh, he didn't physically hurt you. He just was, uh, just solid is the word that in the industry you would use about a guy that, uh, that you, you didn't have to worry about, uh, you know, protecting yourself or blocking things. Just, it, it's kind of like, uh, I, I guess, you know, football players at the National Football League level, they, they, those 300 pounders and plus get lined up. And when that ball snapped, you know, it's like a train wreck crashing. And that's kind of what it was being around Eddie Graham and, um, loved every minute of it. Uh, greatest mind that I was ever around. And, and fortunate that I had a chance to uh, to interact with him and work for him. Well, and and I know Jerry Jarrett feels the exact same way because uh, you know he 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 really he went to bat for for Jerry and uh, and also got Barnett to do the same. And uh, I, I know that that Jerry desperately Jerry, Jerry desperately wanted that NWA World Title for Jerry Lawler. Uh, and you know so many on the NWA board were saying, well, he's not tough enough. And uh, and Eddie Graham would even try to stick up for him, and and Jared would say, you know, hey, what do you mean tough? This is show business, guys. You know, I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, 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 I uh, do you think? I'm sorry, it's a little off track, but uh, one last question, I'll let you go because you saw so many great athletes come through, uh, and there was always the importance of the NWA title stressed in Florida, which I which I loved. Um, do you think, in your opinion, do you think Lawler could have been a traveling NWA world champion? Yes, because he he had the you know he had the, he had the size. He wasn't a monster, but he had the size, and 
everything he did was solid and he could talk. Um, and he was a smart person. He was an intelligent person. So, uh, yeah, he would have been, uh, he would have been an excellent candidate to, to take the, and tour the world title. Belt. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm glad, um, uh, you, know, know, Jared, I, Jared, you know, I couldn't close without saying to Jerry Jarrett too, that, um, Vince, at one point, you know, his territory was down a little bit and he needed some fresh ideas. And so I, I told Vince, I said, Vince, there's a, there's a man out there in this profession who is the closest, if I had to pick somebody that was the closest to Vince McMahon in terms of being impactful in our business, I said, he doesn't have a, a global operation like you do. But he sees the big picture. He's wrestled. He's done every everything that Vince has done, and been successful at it, but just on a uh, on a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. And Vince said to me, he said, "Well, you talked about said Jerry Jarrett." He said, "Well, would would you call him and and ask him if he would come in, and we'll fly him in and put him up in a nice hotel and just have just be able to sit down and have conversation with him." I said, sure, I'll give him a call. And Jerry uh, agreed to come up. And the only thing was, is that's when his son was the captain of the football team on Friday nights. And he just wanted to be, you know, back home so he could see his son play football <laughs> as a quarterback. So he would come up like on a, on a Wednesday and we'd have him for a couple of days and then he would fly back on Friday morning. But um, this was very impressed with, with Jerry. And, and to me, all the people that I've interacted with in the, in, in the business, uh, I regard Vince McMahon as a genius, and right up there on that level with him is uh, is uh, Jerry Jarrett. So and basically, that with all sincerity. So basically, Bruce Pritchard is full of shit. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I, you know, because there's this anim- animosity a little bit between myself and Bruce Pritchard because I, I, I don't like the things that he's he's tried to tarnish uh, Jerry's legacy and uh, I, I don't appreciate it uh, at, at all. I'm a little, it's one of, it's one of those things I'm a little touchy about uh, because I I think you know Pritchard uh, I, and I think Pritchard uh, has a, has a, has a solid mind for the business but he certainly does not have Jarrett's track record for drawing money uh, on a weekly basis like that. Uh, and for to discount just because he, you know, speaks methodically and has a Southern accent, but that's worked very well for Jerry Jarrett. He is sharp as a tack to this day. And he, may, he may talk a little so, but he's listening and he understands everything and he's a hell of a businessman. So, uh, <laughs> well, I, I go on, I go on record shot on your show is saying that, uh, <clears throat> if I looked at the who were the movers and the shakers in our industry, that and I've been around it for sixty plus years, so I've got a body of work that uh, I don't think there's anybody that I uh, that there was anybody in our business that I either wasn't around, worked for, or interacted with, or whatever. And at the at the top of that uh, uh, of that you know hierarchy would be Vince Van, and right there next to him would be Jerry Jack. Wow. Well, wow, that's uh, the world. I said so. Yeah, and coming from you, that that carries a lot of weight because you 
you you worked everywhere. You did it all from the working in uh, WCW with the four horsemen at the height of their popularity to being Vince's right hand man as far as creative goes along with Pat Patterson. Uh, I, I love the descriptions in your book of being poolside on a Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, trying to come up with creative ideas, but uh, and, and if, if any of you have not picked up that book, please do so. It's one of the best wrestling books I've ever read. Ladies and gentlemen, JJ Dillon. JJ, I uh, wish you well. I know you got some travels coming up. You're going to be making some personal appearances. Uh, I believe in Florida, uh, big uh, CWF reunion there. Uh, but we would love to have you come back uh, and maybe talk a little bit more in depth about maybe the '84 run that you had, uh, if you have time. Yeah, and if. If you get any emails or anything from any of your uh, your listeners that have questions, uh, I, I'm always uh, anxious to know what uh, people are currently thinking, and or even if they have questions about the days going by that uh, that they thought about and never had answered, you know, I I, I love to have those questions uh, presented. And I've enjoyed this conversation, and I never get tired of talking wrestling. Yeah, me either, JJ. <laughs> All right, well, I'll let you go because I can do this for another hour and I got to get to work. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, JJ Dillon, WWE Hall of Famer and absolutely one of the greatest wrestling managers of all time, not to mention uh, one of those and great I, minds I for thank, the business. I thank you, Scott. And as always, I thank the fans because without the fans, we wouldn't, have a, we wouldn't have a business. And the people that came out supported me in my career and supported professional wrestling. Uh, we can never, never stop thanking the fans for making any of us and all of us whatever we've become today. Absolutely. It was a very special time. We'll be right back with more Kentucky Fried Wrestling right after this. You tried to throw me out on that table again. You picked me up over it. You did everything that you could possibly do, but Joe LaDuke, I'm still here and I'm back for more, brother. And I'm going to be right down there looking you right in the eye Monday night. And you know they got a lot of farmers in this area in the south. Well, I'm going to do a little farming myself. I'm going to do some planting and I'm going to do some raising. I'm going to plant my fist on that ugly head of yours down there Monday night, and I'm going to raise some bumps and some lumps and some bruises. So come on down, Joe LaDuke and Jimmy Hart, because me and J.J. Dillon are waiting for you, brother. It will be LaDuke and Hart in the ring against Jerry Lawler and this man, James J. Dillon. This coming week, everybody's talking about the Boogie Jam 84. Probably one of the greatest happenings in all of professional wrestling, and I want to wish the boogeyman himself, one Jimmy Valiant, the best of luck. I have a lot of respect and admiration for him, but the match that really, really intrigues me, and in all honesty, I've had to pick up the phone very early in the morning on two different occasions this week and to phone Eddie Marlin just to, just to clarify in my own mind that it wasn't some type of a dream. James J. Dillon and Jerry the King Lawler as tag team partners. Jerry the King Lawler and James J. Dillon, tag team partners against Joe LaDuke and Jimmy Hart. But I'm convinced that it's real. And I've looked at the videotape tape replays of last week a hundred times because I just couldn't believe in my own mind that it really took place. But there, bigger than life, like a couple of dogs on a wounded animal was Joe LaDuke 
and Jimmy Hart. And yes, it was Jerry Lawler that got him off me. And I remember when I cleared the, the blood from my eyes as I was laying prone on the canvas and I looked up and through the blur I saw the face of Jerry Lawler and I got up and prepared to defend myself because we faced each other so many times. And the people were screaming, no, no. It was Lawler that came to help you. You know, it's a funny thing. Many times I've seen a couple of wild dogs, a pack of dogs on a wounded animal. And I think that's what puts the human race one step above the animal kingdom, and it will always be that way because there's something in each and every one of us that says you must do something when you see a pack of dogs on a wounded animal. And Jerry Lawler didn't come to my aid last week because of any love for James J. Dillon, but it was that certain something inside that says what was happening wasn't right. Well, Jerry Lawler, come Monday, I'm going to be out there, and I'm going to give you 100%. Not because I feel any differently about you than I ever did before, because we've both become superstars in the world of professional wrestling, but obviously we've chosen separate paths to get to where we are today. But Jerry Lawler, I owe you. And I don't like owing anyone anything. And this coming week, I'm going to pay my dues. And we are back on KFR. And we want to thank, once again, our guest, WWE Hall of Famer James J. Dillon, for joining us today. His runs in Memphis may have been brief, but they were certainly memorable. And I love his insight into the psychology of a mouthpiece getting a talent over. And in this case, sight unseen. Uh, I don't think the Kamala gimmick would have ever gotten off the ground without J.J. Dillon. And he did that for so many guys throughout his career. And really, what he did, the little subtle things, the mannerisms, it's a lost art. If you're an aspiring wrestling manager out there or even a heel performer, watch some J.J. Dillon interviews. It's very subtle what he does. But it's all in the details, baby. It's the devil is certainly in the details. And J.J. Dillon was one hell of a character and a performer. And speaking of hell, we have got some red hot deals over at MemphisWrestlingTees.com. So be sure to check that out. We've got some juicy combos that folks seem to like. T-shirts and die-cut stickers at a great, great, everyday low price. You can't beat it with a stick. And for clips of some of the action and great angles that we talked about with Mr. Dillon, you can follow me on Twitter at Traff Scott Bowden. You can also find that footage at Facebook.com slash Kentucky Fried Wrestling. I just want to remind you that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye, everybody. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of Championship Wrestling.